you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to have calling into our show Henry Shookman, guiding teacher of the Mountain Cloud Zen Centre and co-director of the Rio Grande Mindfulness Institute here in Santa Fe. And uh, Henry is also a poet and author, and his new book is called One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart. Henry, welcome. Uh, it's lovely to be with you, Rabbi Neil. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little about your book, um, One Blade of Grass, Finding the Old Road of the Heart. What does that mean, to find the old road of the heart? <laughs> yeah, well, let's let's put it like this. I grew up uh, the son of two Oxford professors in England, and um, the, 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 the worldview that I became uh, familiar with as a child was really a very intellectually based one, sort of evidence-based, logic-based. And um, somehow in the course of adolescence and on, I started to pick up a sense that there was more to life and that um, the mind didn't have all the answers and indeed that there was, so to speak, another organ involved, namely the heart, the home of love that was uh, pressing in, trying to get my attention. I, I, I referred to this term, the old road, because when I was a kid, I got to know this old tramp who, who would come to the valley where I, I, I went each summer. And um, he, he talked about there being old roads in the land that nobody could see unless they walked a great deal. If you'd been doing a lot of walking, these ancient tracks would start to appear. And you could find your way great distances across the land if you knew them. So it seemed to me an apt kind of metaphor for finding a deeper way in life, one more connected to love and uh, a sense of a deeper purpose, so to speak. So this isn't taking away from logic and evidence-based, is it? What you're talking about is, is complementing it, is that right? That's a beautiful way to put it. And you, you might say almost sort of finding a deeper level, um, <clears throat> you know, that we, we might have uh, various sort of levels on which we experience each moment and the course of our lives. And, um, you know, to, to it, sometimes I think it's a bit like the old analogy of the ocean and the wave, but I see it a little bit differently, like we might ordinarily live, ordinarily live on the surface, so to speak, tossed around by the waves and, 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 and by the currents and sort of blown this way and that. And meanwhile, we're oblivious to the fact that there's, there's five miles of depth of ocean beneath us, so to speak, and that it is possible to open up to that more and, and, and come to a sense that each moment has a kind of infinite depth to it. And as we do 
open up in that kind of way, it it does uh, affect our hearts very much. It it um, of course it you know neuro neuroscientifically we might say it affects the nervous system a lot. We can we can uh, access deeper calm and uh, more hope and promise and ease and concern for others and that kind of thing. So yes, I think you're absolutely right on. But that doesn't deny that there's also the surface. I do wonder, there's something about when you mention with the with the swimming, that swimming on the surface or being on the surface, but then you have this five miles of depth below. A lot of people find that quite terrifying, I think. We like to be in shallow waters. We like to know that that if we go a little bit deeper, there's actually a limit. And I wonder, as I hear what you're talking about, I, I wonder if there's a sort of terrifying aspect to the depth that we try to avoid. That might be on an intellectual level. When we actually find this kind of greater expansiveness in ourselves and in our lives, it's the opposite of scary. It's quite the opposite. It seems then that all our fear really came from being trapped in a merely surface view where everything was, you know, either opposing us or helping us. And in fact, it turns out that there's a totally different perspective or various, very different perspectives that we can open up to. And um, I don't know whether I'm getting ahead of myself if I say that, um, you know, we, we can really have significant moments of experience when, you know, we, we, we see things really differently and we, we get a taste of this, um, we might call it greater expansiveness, and find that it's tremendously healing to the human heart. It's not at all scary. In fact, it erases fear. Um, so maybe what what you're bringing up is a weakness of my metaphor with the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think what it's doing is it's it's bringing out that sense of there is something deeper, and it's it's it, the the reason that you're afraid is this, but actually come underneath and have a look because it's glorious and beautiful underneath. I think that I think that stands. Good, thank you. And it and also just the underneath part is you know it's it's it's. It's only good in the metaphor. In, in reality, you know, it's really sort of a, the possibility of opening up our sense of the boundary of I, me, mine, which is, you know, typically we think we're just nothing but what is contained by the bag of skin, as Buddhism calls it. Right. And, you know, and we, and we don't get a sense that there's, there's much deeper levels of connection that we, we have and of interdependence, and um, we we are so you know we owe so much to uh, really everything that our lives are more of a of a, a phenomenon of of uh, endless interdependence of things, and you know we're woven into a fabric I, as I see it of of creation that that um, is great is greatly reassuring to find. That we're not so alone as we tend to think. I th this reminds me. I, I've I, I read you speak of um, this new numinous grace that enveloped you. That that seems similar to me. 
is am I is that right um, in terms of the interdependence, the the larger than self? Can you talk about what does that mean for you when you wrote about a numinous grace that enveloped you? What what did that mean to you? Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much for asking. Um, I mean, having grown up in this rather sort of dry academic environment, I did um, have a sort of sudden strange moment of seeing things really differently when I was 19 years old. And um, suddenly I, I sort of ceased to be alone. It was as if I just suddenly out of nowhere, it was a kind of a, epiphany or maybe some kind of a peak experience or something. And all of a sudden I discovered or I felt very strongly that I was inseparable from everything. And it was the most beautiful experience. And, I mean, it, I call it a grace because, you know, I'd done absolutely nothing to deserve it. But it felt like an, an enormous blessing to find this level of reality. But and, have you, I'm sorry, have you, have you done nothing to deserve it? Isn't your existence and your choice of continued existence, isn't that in and of itself an effort to connect to others or to that which is well, greater than you? Oh, well, that's a beautiful way to put it. I think in time I came to see it exactly that way. But at the time when I was 19, I really, I actually did not know what on earth I had just stumbled into. It didn't seem, it didn't fit with anything in my worldview, uh, anything that I'd been taught, anything that I'd read. And in time I came to realize that well, this just has to come under the heading, you know, spiritual experience or something like that, mystical experience even. And, um, and on that level, I think you're absolutely right that we can't ever really deserve that. It's not a matter of deserving. We intrinsically deserve it, so to speak, because it is, in fact, something about who and what we intrinsically are. So it isn't a matter of deserving. And and also, I fully agree with you about the the life as a interconnected service um, to others and to other beings and so on is the only way to live it, and that makes real sense. And um, that also, for me, grew out of that sudden experience. If you see what I mean, it sort of uh, changed my priorities radically. In what ways? What, what were the practical responses to this? Well, over time, um, and I, I emphasize time because in the short term, um, right after it, I'm passing my mind back. You know, it was, it, was, it was beautiful and wonderful, and I just wanted to be of as much help as I could in the world thereafter. But then I, I had some difficult times and got quite low and and found myself having to um because as the experience sort of receded and then i was actually very sad that i i felt i sort of lost it uh you know and then in time i i realized no no it's okay there's a path that people follow and uh if they're lucky enough to find it and that path for many and myself included was one of meditation and and i sort of began to realize that, you know, I couldn't really, the way I personally was sort of built, I couldn't live up to what I'd seen. I couldn't embody it in the way that it seemed to uh, naturally lead to, at least not long term, uh, 
without some practice. And for me, that practice uh, was meditation, which I picked up in my early to mid-twenties in London when I was a graduate student. And I think it was very, very important and helpful in my case that I did so. Otherwise, I might have... I mean, I had what I haven't mentioned, uh, Rabbi Neil, is that I actually had some sort of uh, physiological challenges. I had very severe uh, eczema, a skin condition, from, you know, from infancy until my late 20s, really. And um, I, was, uh, I was kind of a sort of a, you know, nervous and, and highly sensitive sort of guy as a, as a child and adolescent. And when this sort of sudden strange moment hit me, it was, it was an enormous relief. Um, and, and, um, and then, in a way, over time, the sort of old habits came back, you know. And so then I, I recognized, okay, there is a way in this life to, the, the, to be happier and more helpful. But, right. but I need a bit of, I need some practice. I need some method for sort of... Uh, sustaining that so then what we'll do it's that's a perfect point for us to take a little pause and then when we come back after our break we'll talk about what you found that method to be so you're listening you're listening to soul searching on ksfr with rabbi neil from temple beth shalom uh my guest uh this evening henry shookman uh the guiding teacher at the mountain cloud zen center and we will uh, be returning after this break you're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom. My guest this evening, Henry Shukman, guiding teacher of Mountain Cloud Zen Center and co-director of the Rio Grande Mindfulness Institute here in Santa Fe. Before our break, you were sharing a very personal journey about from your eczema um, and also this um, this very powerful experience and then the the attempt to try to bring come back to that experience almost for me in a in a biblical sense almost like trying to climb up mount sinai and saying no i'm i'm still here um that that trying to hold on to it and and um and to find a new path that accepted your experience and for you that was that was zen meditation wasn't it yes yes actually initially i did other forms of meditation that were that were that were not zen but gave me i think a really helpful kind of base of mindfulness practice um, where I, I you know I, I what, what I think meditation can do for us initially is provide a sort of context where our difficulties have space to to be as they are and to be accepted by us and to heal in their own good time and we can develop a I mean, for example uh, in my own case as a, as a at the time I was a uh, it's a rather unhappy, anxious graduate student at UCL in London. And just to have this practice of sitting still twice a day and silent and um, gave uh, a way of giving myself time to breathe, right. time to you know rest and digest and to really sort of... Uh, hold the anxiety or give a space for the anxiety that was not itself anxious. So I started to grow, you could say, a little bit bigger than my emotional life. And that gave it the space to sort of heal and un unbind itself and so on. 
I also found it very helpful to take up yoga, actually. You know, it helped me relax and sort of live more aware of my body, not just in the mind. And that, that I found, for me, that sort of opened up, uh, again, coming back to the heart, it, it, um, it made me much more sort of open to love, to loving and being loved. And I found, you know, relationships improved greatly. Uh-huh. And actually, my, my career went much better. And, you know, it, it was just all around helpful. It seems to me it's a very healthy thing to so, have a little bit of... Yes. I was just going to say, certainly, it sounds like being more of a well-rounded person, doesn't it? I mean, it's very... I can empathize from an English academic perspective, but being able to move from there to being able to say, but who am I? No more than just this bag of skin that has to pay the bills and has to do these things. You know, what do I stand for? Where do I love? How do I express love? How do I experience love? Um, yes. Certainly sounds much healthier, much more rounded. Yes, thank you. I would agree entirely. And it seems to me the key ingredient, maybe, uh, maybe this is uh, not all would agree, but it seems to me the key ingredient is love, being, being, having the heart awake and, uh, and open and being able to, you know, go from a sort of contracted kind of condition around the heart to open and fluid and warm. And it just makes the world a difference. A lot of what you're saying resonates with me, and I try to I try to hear what you're saying through its own lens and not my own bias. Um, but uh, Martin Buber, the Jewish theologian, who talked about the I-Thou experience, um, in that um, very often, as you said, it's I-Me-Mine. Um, it's me relating to other people through my own lens, uh, through my own uh, experience, but then occasionally being able to access, very rarely being able to access that larger connectivity to something beyond ourselves, the thou. Um, and, and I wonder, am, am I projecting onto what you say, Buber, or are there similarities or are, are there actually profound differences here? I think in terms of experience, there are profound similarities. And I'm a, I'm a great uh, lover and admirer of Buber as well. And in fact, he, his tales of the Hasidim was a, I'm, I'm a non, totally non-practicing Jew, I have to confess. And, but, <laughs> you don't have and to I confess have to me. I, we, we don't do confessions. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a relief. <laughs> but, um, I, you know, I, I have a little bit of exposure to Jewish culture through my, through my dad growing up, you know. And, oh man, the tales of the Hasidism is just one of my favorite works. And, uh, Buber's version. And actually, I have to say, when I read um, Buber's introduction, I've read I, Thou, well, I, Thou, as well, but in his introduction to Tales of the Hasidim, he mentions what he calls the Hitler Havut, a holy fire, which is always present. He says every, every deed is its footstool, every act is throne, or something like that. And it's, and it's, it's a sort of mystical glimpse of a of a, some kind of uh, fiery energy that's always present, something like that. You know, I, I'm sure you know more about this kind of thing, forgive me, than I do. But when I read that, I thought, wow, that resonates very strongly with the sort of moment I'm, I was mentioning earlier when I was 19 years old, that somehow there's a kind of eternal presence that can be, that can be found um, or can, can fall upon us and reveal itself to us randomly, you know, by grace. 
let's say. And, um, and that would be, a, I think, a sort of deeper pointer to uh, the, 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 the way of love, that love is our, um, is our truest way of being in the world, so to speak. Both, of course, love amongst, with others and amongst ourselves and in our families and in our wider communities, and then also with non-human beings with this great planet and earth and the trees and mountains and all of that. And also even deeper, maybe, or on another level, there's some kind of, you know, non-material love that we can taste at times. I don't know whether that resonates with you as a, as a religious man or, or not. Well, for me, it's interesting that you mention specifically the, the, the non-human world, because when we talk about love, we naturally talk, we, we, I guess, instinctively feel love as expressed in relationships between individuals. Um, but um, certainly Buber's, since we're sticking with Buber, Buber's um, description of his most profound I-thou moment was actually when he was grooming his horse. And that sense of love and connection between the two of them that transcended their own being. But I'm wondering from your perspective, um, when you're talking about non-human nature and love, is it possible for us to love uh, a rock? And is it possible in your worldview for the rock to love us back? Or is that, what do you mean by love with non-human nature? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly I would resonate with what, with the Buber story, you know, with his horse, for sure. I mean, many people find that, of course, with their, with their cats and dogs and hamsters and so on, and even goldfish, I suspect. But um, but there's a difference you know, there, though, because that's those are domesticated. You know, I do. I love my dogs, but they're domesticated. I had to teach them how to behave in order that we could have a, a, a proper relationship. But I can't yeah. go to the stream or the, you know, to take your uh, book title. I can't go to the blade of grass and say, this is how you need to behave. Um, <laughs> is it possible yeah. for me yeah. to you, when you're talking about love? With the blade of grass, let's, let's stick with that one. Is yeah. it possible to show that love? Uh, does it love us back, or is it, uh, or is our shared experience more an experience of love? What, where, yeah. where do you hold there? Well, well, first of all, I would say that my book title wasn't about a moment of love with a blade of grass. It was more about I being a blade of grass, and um, you know, there's that famous uh, line of. Uh, I think is a Jewish line of the, 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 not a blade of grass, but has an angel bending over it, right. whispering, grow, grow. Right. You know, and I, I felt myself to be no more than a blade of grass that was blessed to have some encouragement to grow and develop and ex- sort of uh, expand into itself in a way it would not otherwise have been able to do. Um, but I do, you know, I, I don't want to sort of scare anybody listening, but... I do think that there is a possibility of finding that we are actually, you know, part of this whole creation. I mean, in a way, it's an obvious thing to say, but I mean that we can actually experience that, you know, it's even though, of course, we're, you know, far more complex and and very different from a rock, actually, we are made of minerals and chemicals and you know just like all things and that there, there may even be some level on which 
we can experience ourselves as really being, um, albeit unusual, but really being part of the fabric of all created things. So with a final few minutes, you describing yourself as being similar to the blade of grass or seeing yourself in the blade of grass using this, yes, very famous Jewish midrash of every blade of grass has an angel above it calling to it to grow. Does that mean that the love that you experience with when you're reflecting, meditating on creation is the love of essential similarity that you and the grass are one that we're all called to develop and grow um, or or change uh, not just be static is that where you are in terms of spirituality because you said you didn't want to scare people or listeners but i i don't find that scary at all i think that's incredibly humbling i can't speak for our listeners of course but i find it incredibly humbling to say every blade of grass is a um, a reflection of myself and I don't mean that in an egotistical way that everything is about me but almost love your neighbor as yourself means even the blade of grass which is essentially a partner in creation or being summoned to grow again is this where you are or am I reflecting mm. differently no no you're right on it you're right on it it's sort of like that Dylan Thomas line the force that through the green fuse drives the flower that we all have that same force working in us, helping us, wanting us to, encouraging us to grow. And, and you know, for me, it seems that the, 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 the direction of growth, so to speak, is into a greater capacity for love. Uh, it sounds corny, I, I imagine, to some. But I think when we taste that, it doesn't feel corny. It feels really wonderful. I don't, I don't think we should apologize for love. I think people do that way too often in our society. And, you know, our, our community, our society is so starved of love. And especially, you know, you and I being British and, you know, the stiff British upper lip and all that. But, yeah. but isn't that the essence of humanity to be able – we don't just live in caves by ourselves in, in seclusion, but we exist in relationship and therefore in, in the potential of love. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's the, the path of Zen that I've, uh, I, I landed on eventually and have been following a long time and been trained in. seems to me it's all about that. You know, my, my teachers were all trying to teach me, really, to open in that kind of way. And, and the whole tradition really is centered around love. And I think this modern mindfulness movement that's become so popular is, is picking up on that. And um, we are really... Um, um, we're, we're really all blessed, I think, to be having these kinds of options opening up in, in the West where we can really develop spiritually and, and emotionally and, and, yes, psychologically um, through, through a very simple practice of being quiet and still on a daily basis. I find that wonderful, that just like a blade of grass, all you have to do is, is wait and be still and, and it happens. There's an intrinsic um, um, uh, capacity, the potential to, to grow under the right conditions. And our surroundings and our environment and our communities are, are blessed and helped by that. And they kind of call it forth in us as well, as you say. 
Well, I think this has been fascinating, and unfortunately, we're out of time. But I'd love for you to come back and to explain more about your very mystical love-based journey at, at some point in the future. Well, I'd be thrilled, and thank you so much for having me. Of course. So, thank you to Henry Shukman, the guiding teacher at the Mountain Cloud Zen Center and co-director of the Rio Grande Mindfulness Institute in Santa Fe, and also author of a number of books, including One Blade of Grass. Finding the old road of the heart. Hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Rabbi Neil. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>